it's hard as a female founder, but do your, and I say this because it's hard because other founders are so busy and, and, you know, we all get swept up into the millions of things that happen when you're running a business, but try your best to talk to other female founders. That's been really like liberating. Welcome to The Irresistible Factor, a podcast where I talk to founders and investors and retailers about what it takes to launch successful brands, from developing a compelling proposition and brand identity, to raising capital, to getting distribution, and more. My name is Christy Bridges, and I'm a marketing expert with tons of experience and a true love for all things health and wellness. Welcome to today's episode of The Irresistible Factor. I am extra excited today because I have a founder and also someone I consider a friend as a guest. So I want to welcome Amberly Venti. She is the CEO and co-founder of Pippi Sips. And Pippi Sips is a brand for moms that we will talk about a little bit that helps with breastfeeding. So welcome to the podcast, Amberly. Thank you for having me, Chrissy. I am yeah. also excited to be here. Thank you. Well, why don't you start and just talk a little bit about Pippi Sips and what it's all about and how you founded and and why also. Sure. I'll try not to go on. I could probably talk for hours about the story, but I'll try to make it more concise than that. So I'm a mom of two beautiful daughters, two beautiful and spunky daughters. And breastfeeding was always something I was passionate about and thought would come really easily and organically because I just thought, oh, it's like an intuitive thing that women have been doing since the beginning of time will be easy, breezy, no big deal. So when I had my first daughter over 10 years ago, breastfeeding was not easy or organic or natural. I actually needed a lot of help. She was born at a pretty small birth weight. Uh, She was full term, but she was still only five pounds, 10 ounces. So latching was really, really hard. It my boob was actually bigger than her head at that point. So latching was hard for her and for me because I didn't know, you know, positions and how to get her mouth to latch on the right way. So anyways, long story short, invested in lactation consultancy, spent six weeks working with her in a lactation consultant to get her to successfully latch. And we finally got there, but much like an entrepreneurial journey, it was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears to get there, but we finally got there. So that's her. That was my experience with her. And then when I had my second baby about four years later, breastfeeding came naturally and easily, but pumping was a whole issue, which I also didn't expect. I, at that point in my life, I had moved up in my career. I've worked in mental health my whole adult life. And at that point in my career, I was running a mental health outpatient unit. So pumping is already hard. It's not a pleasurable experience in any way, but because I was in a leadership position, it was even harder because I really didn't have the time or space to do pumping. I was often being interrupted because people needed help. I oversaw a very large amount of staff, about 30 therapists and a couple psychiatrists. And we worked in this unit that was really like crisis ridden because we had a walk-in unit. So really our doors were open to anybody who needed help. And it was our job to get them that help and make sure that they left our building safely. 
So in the midst of all of that, I was trying to pump and store milk. So time and space was an issue. And then also storage was an issue. So the room where we had our work fridge, where everybody put their lunch and coffee creamer and all sorts of things in, was in the room where we did group therapy. So that made for many issues. Often the door was closed, so I couldn't put my milk in there. And then also it was really hard. Sometimes the door was closed and my milk had already been put in there and I couldn't get it out. It was somewhat held hostage in there. So that was an issue. I also, just as a leader, for me, it wasn't awkward, but some people that I worked with when I walked the halls with see-through milk bottles predominantly the male staff that I worked with would kind of struggle to speak with me and get through whatever we needed to get through. There was a lot of like staring at the bottles, staring at me, and then being like, maybe we'll talk later. And I'd be like, well, that person sounds like they're suicidal. So we should probably figure this out now. Um, (laughs) So a lot of issues like that. So kind of just like the culmination of all these struggles and barriers and my breastfeeding and pumping journey kind of came together one day where I just was looking at my swell water bottle. And at that point, I just was like, wow, we have this beautiful stainless steel bottle for these beverages that we drink, but we have nothing for the liquid gold that I'm spending 25% of my body's energy to make every day. And that's the, my body's energy. The emotional energy was endless. It felt like, and that was really kind of the genesis of my idea for the product. And then it was a very long journey after that, which we could talk about the details, but really talked to a brother-in-law who just graduated business school and told him I had this crazy idea. I even tried pumping into a stainless steel water bottle (laughs) and quickly learned that stainless steel water bottles maintain temperature, but they don't bring the temperature of a liquid down. So if you put a cold liquid in there, it'll stay cold. You put a hot liquid in there, it'll stay hot, but breast milk actually comes out hot and you need to get it to a cool temperature. So that was really the beginning. And He connected us to some engineers who had developed a product and we kind of started the journey there. And then there's five years (laughs) that we could talk about in this podcast (laughs) to actually launching the product from there. Five years from the idea to the launch. Yep. Yeah. Talk about that. So talk about, so your, your product is a cooling and storing device, if you will, for breast milk. And so talk about getting from, I think it's so amazing that you actually tried to use (laughs) Um, you know, one of those thermoses and then we're like, wait, I have a better idea, which is so interesting. What made you think, was it your passion for the things and the, the stress around breastfeeding that made you want to do it? Or was it, I always wanted to start my own business. Like what made you decide there's a need and I want to be the one to fill it. And I'm going to change my life and do that because that's a big decision. Yes. I can genuinely say it was about making a better product and device for breastfeeding and pumping moms. Cause I I just saw it as such a pain point. And that's always the vantage point because I've worked in mental health and social work for so many years. I've always been a problem solver, an advocate. I mean, the kind of problems I had to solve when I was working in that unit, every time I thought I had seen everything or experienced every kind of problem, somebody else would walk in the building and be like, this is what's going on. 
I need this. I need that. I don't have this. I don't have that. And we would have to solve the problem there. So my skills actually from being a mental health professional translated very well to being an entrepreneur. So I think for me, this was one of those things. It was like, this is a problem. I know it's a problem for me. I need to find out if it's a problem for other pumping and breastfeeding women, which we did. But for me, it was really like a challenge. And then the business part kind of came second. I think I thought about having my own business, but that wasn't really like where it kind of generated. Like that was Mm -hmm. kind of the afterthought. It was more like, this is a problem for breastfeeding and pumping women, which we found once we started surveying women, that it wasn't just an Amber Lee problem. As fun as it would be to solve just my own problem. (laughs) (laughs) We wanted to solve a problem for other people. So once we figured that out, that was, that was like the challenge at hand. And I was really determined to solve it. And you left your job when? How long did you do a lot of jobs? Um, And then working a full-time job and being a mom. I just quit my job in July of this year. So two months before we launched about. And we knew, I mean, with the pandemic and global supply chain issues, we knew it was coming, but it was just so hard to predict exactly when it was going to, you know, when our units were going to get here, when we'd be able to ship them out, all of that stuff. So I did three more than full-time jobs, it felt like, for about five years. Yeah. Yes, very exhausting. I think I got used to it in many ways. Luckily, pre-launch, there's a lot of work you can do. There's a ton of work you can do. And being when you have a business, the work is endless. You know, you could just always be doing something. But I think quitting my job for launch was a good decision. I'm always curious to hear about other founders and when they quit their full-time jobs Mm -hmm. for founders who do a full-time job while starting their business. And often it's women. I, to be honest, I think I often hear that women, they call it like a side hustle and yeah, it's always just interesting to hear at what point they decide to really quit that full-time job and take the risk and kind of jump off the cliff and, and jump in. So two questions about that specifically, and then we'll go back a little bit to how you sort of developed a product, but do you miss that job that you just left fairly recently, because you were doing something that obviously was a passion for you as well, because people don't do that job that you were doing because they want to get rich because it's not a get rich job. Right. So (laughs) miss it. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. I actually just went to a happy hour with my old coworkers last night and I, so I went, the job that I had when I had the idea for this product was direct clinical care. So I was working directly with people who needed mental health and social services. But then the job that I did the last, I think, yeah, actually like most of the time we were developing the product because it was a pretty quick transition from direct clinical care. When I had the idea, I was probably there like six months when I had the idea. And then I switched to work for the Medicaid provider of behavioral health services here in Philadelphia. So much more of an administrative job. And actually helped with the work-life balance much more, to be Mm -hmm. honest, because I was behind it. I was more of like a behind the desk, behind the scenes type of person. But what I did was evidence-based practice implementation, which is just a very fancy way to say that we helped our 
providers, our mental health providers that are funded by Medicaid to provide empirically based services, which is like the creme de la creme of psychotherapy. So it's cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavior therapy, prolonged exposure. And I loved that job, actually. I really, really. So the answer is yes. (laughs) The long, the short answer is yes. The long answer is that is also like a problem solving type of job. So I wasn't directly in care where you're putting out fires more immediately. I was doing kind of more long-term problem solving. So when you're a mental health provider in the Medicaid system, resources are low, funding is low, things are just kind of a wreck. And then when you ask them to do an empirically based service, like cognitive behavioral therapy or prolonged exposure, that is very hard because those are really regimented types of psychotherapy. They involve all sorts of things, whether it's you're recording the client and sending them home with a recording of themselves, worksheets, groups, like there's phone consultation. So you have to do this whole other kind of problem solving to do the service in such an under-resourced environment. And my job was to help those providers do that problem solving. So I absolutely loved that. I thought it was, yeah, it was just like so rewarding. And it was really nice to work with those providers specifically because I had had direct clinical experience. So they really respected my, my opinion. And like, they knew that I came from a background of putting out fires all the time. And what I was saying was real and genuine. Yeah. I did not like working in the bureaucracy of the Medicaid system. I will leave it at that. (laughs) I think that's probably all I'm allowed to say, but it was a pretty political system. And, uh, that's just, I don't work well in that. I'm, I'm way too, uh, to be, (laughs) to float my own boat. I'm way too authentic for that stuff. And I just will like blow up a room when people are trying to behave in a political manner and not speaking the reality of the situation. And I actually think it does a very big disservice to that community that is experiencing real problems in real time. Yeah. Yeah. So now you're your own boss. You don't have any politics. (laughs) No. (laughs) Um, So how, so talk about the five years that you were developing the product. How did you go about figuring it all out? Cause you're, you made something that's sort of a tech product, right? Your product cools down breast milk, tells you the temperature and there's nothing else like it on the market. So you had to really create something that didn't exist. What made you even think you could do it? (laughs) Well, if somebody had told me what it would involve, (laughs) I, you know, because you don't entrepreneurs have to go in half naive because you'd never do it. You'd never do it. Exactly. Yeah. If anybody told me like just the amount of time it would take the problem solving the money, all that stuff. Although I'm like so stubborn, I probably would have done it anyways. Yeah. So we really didn't know what we were doing. I mean, I think what my brother-in-law said to me in the very beginning, which was, I said, I have this crazy idea. Like it just feels crazy to me. And he was like, well, there's like multi-million, billion-dollar businesses that were created on crazy ideas. So you should just try it. I think he really kind of just like said, no, this is like businesses you see on Shark Tank, all that same thing. They had a light bulb moment. It felt like a crazy idea, but they followed through with it. And each step that we got into the process, you know, there's always positive reinforcement along the way. There's very high highs and there's very low lows. And 
you have to learn how to ride them out. But usually the high highs are what kind of like keep pushing you forward a bit. Yeah. So I think every step of the way, there was some type of high or some type of success that made us think we were on the right track. And now, especially now that we've launched it, there was always, I always had a sentiment of like, this is a really good idea. This will help people. We have something here. And I think that was kind of my North star and to just hang on to my gut, I think, and intuition regarding feeling like this was a good idea. Yeah. And then talk about pre-launch because you, I mean, we met through the SKU program, which I think everyone who's listening should look into because it's an amazing program. It's an accelerator program based in Austin. There's one in New York to help brands that are new to the market really figure out positioning and supply chain, all the things. So talk about how you even got involved with that and, and how that's affected what you're doing right now. Skew was like the perfect timing for us. So we were pre-launch for like five-ish years. And then Skew, you know, in many ways, I think they took a positive risk on us as a, you know, when we were interviewing for Skew, we had not launched yet. And all the other brands that were accepted were post-launch and one to two years. Yep. Yep. Had revenue. Exactly. One to two years into business. So they took a quite a positive risk on us. I will shout out to Maddie who like had her eye on us for actually years. She had talked to us two years ago <laughs> and I wow. remember interviewing with her and being like, oh, I think we're launching soon. I think we are. I don't know. Like, so we got accepted into SKU. It started in August and we were just getting ready to launch then. And it was just perfect because when you launch a product, you have no idea what you're doing, right? I've never launched a product before. And all of a sudden I was surrounded by these amazing experts like you, Christy, <laughs> who have expertise in branding and launching and PR in tech in global supply chain. Like every, I had, it just felt like I had masters at my fingertips. Like what it was, I think I had five or six mentors and I got to meet with them once a week and be like, okay, this is, this is the fire that's happening right now. How do I put this out? Or Or how do I ignite this fire more? Like, how do we start to generate a snowball effect with our sales? And it was just fabulous. I I couldn't have picked a better time for us to be part of the SKU program. And I think tangible things that happened were we went to a Shopify site and all this, like, that was like one of the first things the team said to me. (laughs) They were like, your website does not work very well. (laughs) And if you want to really sell this item, you're going to have to have a very well-functioning e-commerce site. So we went to Shopify pretty quickly. We talked about branding really quickly. We One thing that you were super helpful with was differentiating our product name from our brand name and making sure that that was clear in all the materials and communications that we were putting out. Yeah, just like stuff that we would have probably never thought about or we would have known was an issue, but maybe not know how to quickly solve the problem. And it was just amazing to have all these mentors at my fingertips once a week to be like, this is how you can solve it. Or like, I'll meet with you privately for an hour and we'll figure it out. Or I know this person who can do this. I mean, it was my first time going through the program too. And I think in 12 weeks, the difference from your the way you presented Pippi Sips on week one versus the way you presented it in week 12 was just so much tighter and different. And obviously that was an intense 12 weeks, like tons and tons of time. Talk about that. I mean, you must've been thinking about it nonstop for 12 weeks. 
Yes. More than yes. normal. Yeah. More than yeah. Like normal nonstop. Yeah. Yeah. And it was so funny how everything went down. Just like as a side note, when we started SKU, I, because I had quit my job in July. So I was like, oh, we're going to go on vacation like most of August. Like, because then we still didn't know when our product was going to be ready. And so, and I've, I've worked full time since the minute I graduated college, you know, and before in between high school and college, I worked full time. So like, I've always had a full time job. And for me, it felt like this really big release to quit my true nine to five. And I was like, oh, we're going to go on a family vacation. Then me and my husband are going to go on vacation. (laughs) But then I found out I was in school and I was like, (laughs) oh, So I had a meeting in California with my SKU crew, my SKU mentors. I had a meeting in Puerto Rico with my SKU mentors. <laughs> Thank God for Zoom. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And what changed? Has it changed anything for you so far? I mean, yeah. now SKU, SKU, yeah, now it's over. You're what? We're a month out of it being done. Yeah, I mean, I think. As a company, obviously, just what you said, I think we present much differently. And as a brand, we present much differently. And there was so many, I know my mentors I can reach out to at any time, and they're all happily and willingly will engage with me. And then along the way, there were long-term goals that we kind of made that still haven't been met. So, you know, I know... I'm trying to think like of a tangible example, like thinking about next product and how we figure out what our customer needs. We were given really good advice about to how to do that research. So that's something that I was actually talking to somebody about yesterday that like as soon as holidays are over, we're going to hit the ground running with that and start surveying breastfeeding and pumping moms and kind of get a glimpse into what the next product will look mm-hmm. like. I want to know about your like fundraising. So have you guys done a raise yet? I don't think so, right? And outside of your friends and family raise? So we we have done every kind of fundraising there is. This is like a tricky question. So we have done crowdfunding, equity crowdfunding, which was mostly friends and family, but we did have investors who were, we did it through WeFunder. So there's a lot of mm-hmm. investors on WeFunder who look for brands yep. like ourselves with high growth potential and invest. We've gotten... or under from some accelerator programs we've been involved with. What else? We've won pitch contests. We've won design contests. We've gotten grants. We've done everything. We've bootstrapped. Yeah, we've done traditional crowdfunding. So we haven't done a true like angel or VC investor raise at this point. Do you feel like you will soon or are you trying not to? I, I, no investor wants to hear this, (laughs) but I think I, you know, it's a little, it's a slippery slope or like we're in an in-between. So I actually know the company Dude Wipes who went through SKU Mm -hmm. and is extremely successful. And I think very close to an acquisition has raised like no funding, much different product than ours, probably much more like financially easier to make, like uh, cost less to make. But they've scaled. Sells for a lot less. So, yeah. Yeah. So I think if we are to do a raise, it's going to be more like spring, summer, when we really have like some time and traction under our belt. We're really only, what, three or four months in here. So just creating the kind of leverage we would want to create with investors But I also think we're one of these companies, and we've been told this by one of our investors, that could 
slowly grow. And we've been told this by more than one investor, slowly grow at with our own internal funding to become, mm-hmm. you know, a big behemoth of a company. And we're already seeing where we, well, I guess I'll be semi-careful, but we're, we've moved into profitability relatively quickly because we have a high priced item. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. That's awesome. Because that's a big, I mean, the, the world has changed so much and it'll swing back, but right now that's really, really important to investors. So I think it's amazing that you can even say that because mostly brands at your stage cannot say that they're profitable at all. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. That's amazing. But do you want to be a behemoth company? Like what's your goal for 56? <laughs> My, our goal in general, which I think would organically make us a behemoth of a company is that a product like ours, like our flagship product and products that will follow become the status quo for pumping moms. Mm -hmm. So original goal was to break the status quo because the status quo was shared work fridge, which is like, can be nasty and no fun to share with your coworkers. Or a bulky style camp cooler, which is hasn't been innovated since like 1962 mm-hmm. and is just this like shabby cooler with an ice pack that leaks and melts and all these bottles and caps and da da da. So original intent was to break that status quo, but my goal is for us to become the status quo and that women expect something sleek, reliable and safe for their breast milk storage and cooling. And I think in turn, you know, if you look at the market of pumping and breastfeeding women, that would, that would make us a behemoth of a company. Mm -hmm. Yep. The thing I always ask people is what have you learned along the way that you would like to pass on to founders, like lessons, things to do, things you wish you hadn't done, things, you know, now that you didn't know when you started. Well, I I was getting kind of jump into it a bit, but I think investment is something to think really long and hard about. I think, especially when you're a female founder with a femtech product, you know, that has been some of our ambivalence about raising a true round. The initial, (laughs) I know, you know, the answer, (laughs) Uh, you were in the room when I've gotten some of the questions, you actually saw a pretty tame experience too. So some of our initial experiences in trying, and actually it's hard to say if we were even trying to raise money, we were more trying to practice pitching and, you know, there's a pretty small startup ecosystem here in Philadelphia. So there's a lot of opportunities to practice your pitching in like conferences or events and this and that. And we've had some really rough experiences. We've tried, it's like, We've tried all different ways of pitching. So you're predominantly pitching to men, right? That is who rules the VC and investor world. So we've tried all sorts of things. We've tried pitching together. So my co-founder is my husband. We tried pitching together. So there's kind of like a male-female dynamic. Maybe he can engage the men a little bit more. I don't know. We've tried that. That didn't work well. We've tried education. So giving like a starting our pitch off with when a woman has a baby, she starts lactating in order to keep lactating. When she has to leave the baby, she has to pump. A pump works like that, like from down to like the nitty gritty, because one thing we've learned along the way is that men or women predominantly 
don't know why people pump or how they pump and how it works. That is not something that's taught in sex ed. Sex, <laughs> sex the list ed of things that kids don't learn that would be useful is so long, right? Right, yeah. right. Yeah. They might make you think twice about <laughs> yeah. having unprotected sex if you knew really what breastfeeding and pumping yeah. was about. So we've tried the education route. We've tried, I mean, I think now it's really just talking about how big the market is, but for some reason, no matter, even if you say the breast pump market is makes billions of dollars, for some reason, when a male investor who doesn't know much about breastfeeding or pumping hears that they still think it's a niche market. We still get that word a lot. It's like my trigger word at this point. Niche for women, half the more than half the population. Right, exactly. It's wild. It's wild. It's, wild. it's totally yeah. insane. You know, and I like, I recently did a LinkedIn post. I did a very fiery LinkedIn post about this, but like nobody describes the erectile dysfunction market as niche, right? right. Never. They never, ever, ever would. And the markets are comparable. Like the numbers are almost the same. That's incredible. Yeah. So, you know, I don't know. We've just tried so many different things. So I do know that if and when we do raise a true round, we will be going to investment firms that are focused on female founders and or femtech. I think that's probably the safest and to be honest, like for me, it's the most emotionally safe way of proceeding. I'm willing to sacrifice a lot for this business and brand, but I've been in too many rooms where it's been, people are aggressive and and for some reason people get mad when you start to correct them. And it just turns into like a really ugly scene that I don't need to be a part of. <laughs> so are you okay with slower growth for now to wait till you find the right moment, the right investor? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we would, of course, like fast growth, but, you know, without hundreds of thousands or millions of dollars, it it obviously is slower. So we're just trying a lot of different things that we can do with the budget that we have and the resources that we have to increase the growth. And we've, a lot of it's experimenting with marketing, influencers, campaigns, all sorts of things. And we've seen really good traction with different things. So we just keep kind of trying those things out and seeing what works. And if it works, we keep doing it. If it doesn't work, we accept that it was didn't work. And just learning. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And the SKU mentorship, you all were so helpful with that. We would try something and I'd be like, I don't know if this is working. And I'd get really good constructive feedback from you all about how to either tweak it or just move on or try something new. So I get that. And you're not the first person who's talked about that, but you have a very unique product that is extremely female focused. Like female founders always have a harder time, I think, than male founders. And when they're raising capital, it's always different. But yours is extremely different because it's the topic that men do not like to talk about still at all. Even dads of young babies don't like to talk about breastfeeding and their wives are doing it all the time. So you're in a really different place. But what else what else have you sort of learned along the way? And, And maybe some of it's related to that. Well, one thing that I've learned and maybe so much of it is about feminism. which is like my favorite subject. Christy knows this about me because she met <laughs> she met with me every week for oh, what, 3 months. So, you know, like I understand my concept of what feminism is and why 
our brand in many ways is a feminist brand, but there's just so many like variables and nuances and shades of gray and that, and there's, and that's my concept, right? And when you are a startup and your team is like two people, your brand is really yourself in many ways. So one thing I think that I learned that was a really good learning experience and really positive was like, I, as a almost 40 year old woman, just expected that things around breastfeeding and pumping would suck, (laughs) that there was not going to be any better out there, that nobody cared. And that the experience was just going to be terrible. And, and then I had this idea for a product to make it better. Right. But I just assumed other women thought the way that I did. And now that we've launched the product five years later, and the consumer is so different than who I was, almost even six years ago, what was really shocking, but really hopeful and really inspiring and just keeps me trudging forward every day is that the consumer now is not me. It is not expecting shitty products. They are expecting great products. They are expecting products for all their femme needs, right? So like period and menstrual care is so different. The landscape's so different. Like I have two daughters and how I'm thinking about presenting to them, how we're going to deal with them menstruating is so different than when I was a kid. (laughs) And like, you know, the pads were ginormous and tampons were not easy to use and yada, yada, yada. Now there's like period underwear and there's cute period underwear for tween girls so that the conversation feels better and feels more like somebody thought about my little girl in making the product. Not that it was made in some big medical type of factory with a male CEO at the top. And that was something we learned really quickly into making this product was that most pumps, these big pump brands have a male CEO, these old, old, and I'm talking about the older pump brands, the ones that the more brand names that we've all kind of grown up with. Not, I'm not talking about Willow Pump. So when we launched the product and we started to kind of get this feedback from customers, a lot of them were kind of like, duh, <laughs> which I loved. I was like, like my uh, one, one of our customers who was actually like our neighbor was, who's a young woman who's 10 years younger than me. She was like, it works really great. I bring it to the beach. I bring it when I go to a wedding and I can't be with the baby. But like her, just her response was very like, of course, I expect technology to make my life easier and better. And a product like this is just expected to me because women who are 10 years younger than me have iPhones where they can change the temperature of their house when they're at work, where they can turn their car on, where, you know, like they just, technology has been at their fingertips. Yeah. So this is a natural place for technology for them, even though for you, for me, forget it, but yes, it didn't even (laughs) exist. So for you though, you're like, wow, this is a big innovation. And then for them, it's like, of course, this is what's needed for a long time. Where have you been? Right. (laughs) (laughs) Which was like, yeah, it was so cool. I was like, oh, wow, this is awesome. (laughs) That's great. And we're getting to the end of our time, but what two pieces of advice that you would give to people who are thinking of starting something or have already started and are kind of like, oh my God, should I keep going? See it to the end. It's so hard. We did five years of product development. We had highs, we had lows, we had points where we didn't think we were going to be able to finish it, but we got to the end 
in some ways we're keep going. Like what, what, when you were like, this is the question I like to ask people. Cause I always think about it myself. Cause there have been moments where I'm like, what am I doing? What made you keep going in those moments where you were like, no, too hard, too much work. I can't do it. But then you kept going. Why? How? Mm, that's a hard, we, a lot of the moments where we thought we weren't going to be able to move forward, some kind of like serendipity would happen. It was kind of wild. Like the universe like wanted it to happen right before we were going to manufacture the product. We, we were, we really didn't have like the money to do it, the funds to do it. And then all of a sudden we got into the university city science centers launch lane program, which is a really prestigious program here in Philadelphia, which really has been so supportive, much like skew has really helped us to get to the next step. And we literally found that out, like the day we were going to have a meeting to figure out whether we were going to stop the journey. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. 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 And I, it was funny when I got the call for that. I remember getting the call. I was like, do I tell them that? And then it was like, no, that will look too desperate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but then I told them once we graduated the program, I was like, you know, we were like almost going to give up. And then you accepted us into the program, which came with investment and helped us to make this product. So weird things like that would happen. Like we would be in these like I don't know, like, and that's just like a very specific to funding, but stuff like that would happen too around where we would just kind of be in the thick of it. And then something would kind of like open up the door Mm -hmm. would open. I mean, I even think how we launched right as we came into skew, that was kind of wild. And we launched right, like right breastfeeding month or something like that. Like everything, things would just be kind of just serendipity would happen. So it was always kind of the universe telling us to move forward. And it was always that gut instinct of like, this is, this is going to be a great product and a great brand and change people's lives. So we just have to move forward. Awesome. Awesome. Anything else? It's hard as a female founder, but do your, and I say this because it's hard because other founders are so busy and, and, you know, we all get swept up into the millions of things that happen when you're running a business, but try your best to talk to other female founders. That's been really like liberating. I was going to ask you if you know of any groups of female founders, like, are you, is there a group of female founders? Should there be one? Yeah. um, We've had, I've been involved here and there with things. There was like the Comcast Lift Labs has a female founder and funder meetup. They kind of stopped when the pandemic first started, but I think they're back up and running. That's been helpful the female founder world podcast I just started listening to. I don't know why it took me this long to get there, but I've already, I've listened to like three of those podcasts and already it's like, I've heard female founders tell their stories and things that worked for them. And I've researched some of those things and I'm following through with some of those things. And then most recently I had a founder in the Netherlands reach out to me, which was like kind of a wild thing. I was like, what's going like, who is this person? Like, what is this going being human? I'm always like a little skeptical, Uh (laughs) but she was awesome. We had like just a nice hour long meeting where she just told me her experience in developing her product and launching her brand and what the market is like in Europe and how different it is and how she wants to come to American market and talk to a founder like me because she doesn't know as much about it, but just the like relational process oriented stuff for both of us, I think was really 
supportive and made us kind of gave us some more light and oil for our candles. Um, Awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. I can't wait to get this launched and I can't wait for more people to find out about Pippi Sips. Yeah, me too. It's lovely being here. Yeah. And so so much. much. It was nice talking to somebody I know so well too. Thank you for listening to The Irresistible Factor. I'm Christy Bridges, and I can't wait to see you next Wednesday.